This is Giles Milton, host of the Unknown History Podcast, and you're listening to a special mini-series from historian Terry Galway on the unlikely alliance of New York politicians FDR and Al Smith. Hi, this is Terry Galway, and you're listening to part four of Frank and Al. Franklin Roosevelt transformed his public image at the otherwise disastrous Democratic National Convention of 1924. He was seen once again as a politician with a bright future ahead of him, no longer a tragic victim of a terrible disease that took away the use of his legs. But just as he depended on others to move from place to place, he knew his political ambitions were dependent on the continued success of Al Smith, the man he supported for president at the 1924 convention. After Smith lost his bid to become the party's presidential nominee, he ran for re-election for a third term as governor of New York. His opponent was none other than Theodore Roosevelt Jr., Eleanor Roosevelt's first cousin and a distant cousin of her husband, Franklin. Eleanor seized the opportunity to campaign for Smith and against her cousin, linking him unfairly to the still-developing Teapot Dome scandal. Franklin continued to rehabilitate his body and remained off the campaign trail, but he did release a statement full of disdain for his distant cousin, urging New Yorkers to choose Smith because of his experience and his progressive record. Smith won a smashing victory. Despite that support, Roosevelt was not part of Smith's inner circle, and in fact two key Smith advisors, Bell Moskowitz and Robert Moses, considered Roosevelt to be nothing more than a political lightweight, especially when compared with the self-taught Al Smith. But even as he became a frequent presence at a spa in Warm Springs, Georgia, Roosevelt remained in constant touch with the governor in Albany. He served on a state park commission, advised Smith on how to strengthen the Democratic Party in the Hudson Valley, and kept up a steady stream of correspondence about politics, job seekers, and Smith's prospects in the 1928 presidential campaign. You will be a candidate in 1928, whether you like it or not, Roosevelt told Smith. But there was no need for the stern lecture. Smith liked the idea very much. Roosevelt and Louis Howe were in touch with scores of Democratic power brokers throughout the country, assuring them that Smith would be the party's best chance for victory in 1928. It was a bold claim because the issue of Smith's religion wasn't simply lurking in the background. It was in the very forefront of the nation's political conversation. Smith was a Roman Catholic, and no Catholic had ever won a major party's presidential nomination. But Roosevelt, a blue-blooded Episcopalian, assured his many friends and contacts that Smith's faith would not conflict with his duties if he were elected president. And when the Atlantic Monthly, an influential magazine, published an essay arguing that Catholics should not serve as president because they were more loyal to the Pope than they were to the country, Roosevelt urged Smith to respond. He did, in an elegant essay that still is relevant 90 years later. Thanks in part to Roosevelt's skillful advocacy, Smith faced little opposition as the 1928 campaign season opened. It was an astonishing turn of events, given how the party tore itself to pieces in 1924. Smith once again turned to Roosevelt to deliver his nominating speech at the convention in Houston, and FDR revisited the line that made his speech in 1924 so memorable, again calling Smith the happy warrior of the political battlefield. Smith was nominated on the first ballot, becoming the nation's first non-Protestant candidate for national office. With Smith preparing to face Herbert Hoover, the Republican candidate, 
New York Democrats had to find somebody other than Smith to run for governor. Smith had been their candidate five times since 1918, and there was no heir apparent. Eventually, Smith and other party leaders announced that the nomination ought to go to Franklin Roosevelt. He had, after all, served the party well and had tremendous name recognition. There was only one problem. Franklin Roosevelt wanted no part of it. He went into virtual hiding, something that was possible back in the days before instant communication. He was in rural Warm Springs, in a spa that had just one telephone, and he told staff that he was unavailable for any callers from New York. Eventually, though, with the help of Eleanor Roosevelt, Al Smith persuaded FDR to accept the party's nomination for governor. He did so with great reluctance, uncertain about his health and his chances. The presidential campaign of 1928 proved to be one of the ugliest in American history, still. There were several issues at play. The prosperity of the Roaring Twenties, which took place under Republican rule. The cultural war over prohibition, which remained the law of the land even though it was widely violated and ignored, especially in the cities of the North and the Midwest. But more than anything else, the nation was divided over Smith's religion. For many Americans, Catholics were the very definition of un-American. They took orders from the Vatican. They didn't understand Protestant concepts of liberty. They could never assimilate. They were easily manipulated by unscrupulous priests. The Ku Klux Klan burned crosses when Smith spoke in Oklahoma. Protestant ministers told their congregations that they must vote against Smith in order to preserve their nation and even their marriages, for it was said that Smith would nullify all non-Catholic weddings. With Election Day approaching, Franklin Roosevelt denounced the bigotry of the anti-Smith forces while he was campaigning for governor of New York in a part of the state known for its KKK membership. Roosevelt knew he risked alienating some voters with his defense of Smith and his religion, but he made it clear that it was a matter of principle. He would rather lose than remain mute in the face of hatred. Election Day 1928 was a good day to be a Republican and a bad day to be a Democrat. It was clear early in the evening that Al Smith was destined to lose in a landslide, and so he did. It seemed equally clear that Roosevelt, too, would go down to defeat. When he left campaign headquarters in midtown Manhattan with most of New York's votes counted, Roosevelt considered himself a loser. But he woke up a winner. He prevailed by just 25,000 votes out of more than 4 million cast. His comeback was now complete. He had won an election for the first time since 1912, and he knew better than most that the governor of New York was always considered a presidential candidate in waiting. Victory was glorious, but few now doubted that there was more glory to come. In defeat, Al Smith thought he might serve as the state's shadow governor while FDR continued to spend months in Warm Springs. He was quickly disabused of that idea as Roosevelt asserted himself, appointed his own people to key positions, and politely declined overtures from his predecessor. Still, Smith remained publicly supportive of his successor and friend, and when Roosevelt ran for a second term as governor in 1930, Al Smith delivered the nominating speech at the state Democratic Convention. The state and the nation were in the grip of the Great Depression, but Roosevelt was as popular as ever, thanks in part to his aggressive jobs and public works programs. On Election Day, he recorded the greatest landslide victory in New York's history, winning re-election by nearly three-quarters of a million votes. Soon there was talk of Franklin Roosevelt's inevitable campaign for the presidency in 1932.
but there was a potential obstacle in Roosevelt's path, and his name was Al Smith. If you like what you've heard, my book, Frank and Al, is available at bookstores everywhere. You've been listening to guest historian Terry Galway. I'm your host, Giles Milton. Tune in to the Unknown History podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or at quickanddirtytips.com. And stay tuned in November for the third season of Unknown History, in which I'll share gripping accounts from soldiers, sailors and airmen who fought in the first 24 hours of D-Day. Thanks for listening. <laughs>